Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Um, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So glad to have y'all. Special welcome to all of our first-time guests. Um, if y'all would, would you stand with me as we read our text from the day? We'll be in Titus chapter 3 today. Titus chapter 3, um, as we close out our series, Community Under Construction. Read with me. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and Second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come and see me in Nicopolis because I have decided to spend the, win the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you their greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would take your word and apply it to our hearts and make us the type of people that reflect you in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your seat. Uh, we live in a world of constant reflection. Some folks call the age that we live in the information age. I like to think of it of the reflection age, and I think social media has made this abundantly apparent. It's always been this way, but social media, what it does is it gives us access to people's reflections and their thoughts. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that is how do we experience the world through somebody else's eyes or thoughts. Statements are made, pictures are posted, comments are pasted. Here's my baby, and here's my reflection on my baby. Here's my vacation, and here's my reflection on my vacation. Here's the movie that I saw, and here's my reflection on the movie that I saw. Here's the latest 
police shooting. And here's my reflection on the latest police shooting. Society at large uh, finds it odd, right? So you're the odd one out if you don't post anything because they feel like I'm entitled to know what you reflect on. And here's one of the most basic reflections. People should get what they deserve. All of us have this inside of us. Good people deserve the good that they get. So when we go to a place and we're served well, we tip. But bad people should get the bad that they deserve. And even if we don't say it, we long for it. And you're in a movie and the bad guy gets what he deserves. You cheer. When you're driving and somebody cuts you off and they speed and they get pulled over by the cops, you cheer. When a corrupt politician gets embarrassed or impeached, you cheer. When your ex that cheated on you gets cheated on, you cheer. We think that people should get what they deserve, and sometimes we feel like we're the ones best suited to give them what they deserve. We know that there's this thin line in between justice and vengeance, but that thin line is blurred because we step over it so many times. This concept that people should get what they deserve, that's what we call a value, something that we hold, something that shapes how we act. And here's the funny thing about values. Values are strange things because we don't have to know uh, what they are or whose they are to adopt them. Here's what I mean by that. Values are not like a buffet line where you go down and say, oh, I like that one, I think I'll take that one, I like this one, I think I'll take that one, I think I'll leave this one there. Uh, values are things that you and I are force-fed. We adopt them not be, because we choose to, we just find out that they're there. Often we don't determine our values, we discover what they are. Here's what Tim Keller says about the four values that shape our world right now. It's the thing that our world constantly reflects on and they tell us that we should value. He says this one is um, our world tells us that you've got to be true to yourself uh, uh, above all else. Two, be true to yourself, but don't hurt anybody else. As long as you're true to yourself and you don't hurt anybody else, it really doesn't matter. So you can love who you want to love. You can do what you want to do. Just make sure that you don't hurt anybody. Three, be true to yourself. Don't hurt anybody. And above all, do what makes you happy. And four, nobody should be able to tell anybody else what to do. You look at any movie preview that comes out nowadays, and all of them are about these same things. These are the values that our world has. The problem is the values that our world promotes doesn't produce the world that they promise. So it's okay to tell somebody to be true to themselves just so long as they don't hurt anybody else. But what takes place when somebody feels like me being true to myself is me stepping out on a commitment that I made to my wife and my kids to be happy. I hurt somebody else. That these 
values just don't work. And more than that, we live in a world where people, as they reflect on things and they share their reflections, people share their reflections, and it just turns into this world that's constantly clashing. So far from being a world of peace and joy and love and acceptance, it's a world of hate and vitriol, and you can be peaceful just so long as you believe all the same things that I believe about all of these four things. We live in a world that promises peace, but the values that our world has does not bring the peace that it promises. What our world needs is a fresh vision, a fresh reflection of something else, and that's what the book of Titus is all about. It's about God's construction project. In a world that is condemned and set to be torn down one day, God has started building this thing that he calls the church. And this church is supposed to present a reflection of God's goodness to the world. But the question is, how do we reflect God's goodness to a world that seems like they're bad and their badness are things that are done to us and it's hard to reflect God's goodness to people who constantly give us their badness how do we do that that's what Titus 3 is all about so if you would turn with me to Titus 3 and I just want to start off with this first these first two words the first two words that are right there are remind them Titus ends with a reminder. And I just want to start there because so much of Christianity, so much of being the people that God has called us to be, is not you and I getting new information about who we are, but it's us being reminded of the things that God has already said. We forget. We leak. God may have made us into a new house, but we still have old pipes. God may have made us into a new cup, but there's still a hole in the bottom. It's a new bottle of wine or grape juice, depending on your conscience, with cracks, with cracks in it. We leak, we constantly need to be refilled. And so the first question that I have for you um, is how are you making sure that you're being refilled? If the only time that you're being refilled, if the only time you look in God's word to remind you about what he says is on Sunday, Monday through Saturday is a long time to run on empty. And you don't have to place reminders. One of the best ways to place reminders is to f surround yourself with the kind of relationships with people that are constantly going to pour in to you. All of us have the relationships in our lives where we have to pour out. If you're at home with kids all day, you pour out. And all that you pour out, they spill on the floor and you have to clean up and pour again. If you're at a job that's hard, you pour out to people. If you're a counselor, if you're a teacher, if you're just a college student with needy friends, you constantly pour out. Make sure that you have somebody that pours back into you. We need to be refreshed. 
Paul was this for Titus. Make sure you have somebody like that. So here's what he's going to do is he talks about how it is that we're to be a reflection in the world of God's goodness. Here's the main point that he's going to lay out. The main point is this. We become reflections of God's goodness by reflecting on God's goodness. The way that you and I in this world become reflections of the goodness of God is by constantly reflecting on God's goodness. And so he's going to say this in three ways. There's three things that he's going to do. He's going to tell us to follow the leader. He's going to tell us to avoid unneeded pit stops. And lastly, he's going to tell us to put our foot on the gas. Follow the leader. Avoid unneeded pit stops. And put your foot on the gas. Follow the leader. That's verses 1 through 8. Uh, Y'all remember that game, Follow the Leader? It was where your body becomes theirs. Their actions become yours. Your cues for what you do doesn't come based on what you want to do. It comes based on what you see them do. That's how Paul tells us that you and I show off God's goodness in the world. Look here at verse 1 and 2. Remind them. To submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Verse 1 and 2, it reminds us that you and I as people of God are supposed to be the best and the most benevolent citizens. Paul is not writing to somebody that agrees with the political views of the people that are in power at the time. He is writing to somebody who is living under oppressive rule. And Paul tells him to remind this church to submit to the rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. His point here is that injustice is never a justification for you and I to sin. We do not get to disobey what God would have us to do because we are being sinned against. We are not a reflection of what people do to us. We are to be a reflection of God. Now, every earthly justice system is distorted. Some of them are clear, right? So we can look and see some of them are clear and the whole country feels the same way uh, about the regime that they're under. Some of them are clear for certain groups in a particular country. We have to know every earthly justice system is distorted. And what that means is that at the end of the day, Scripture, God's word, is our highest authority. Here's what that means. Sometimes... Just like Peter, we are going to have to say, I know that the powers that be called me to do this, but if I were to do that, I would sin against my God. So I know that there's sometimes there are racist policies put in place, but the Christian says, I don't care what's rained down from above, I can't do that. My conscience is constrained to my God. The state is not absolute. God is. 
And so here's what that means. There's two ways people can forget this. You can tell that somebody has forgotten this if they find themselves on the extremes. If they never have a critique for what goes on with people at the top level of authority, they may have forgotten that scriptures are highest authority. But in the same vein, if people never comply, they may have forgotten the same thing, that Scripture is our highest authority. We do not put our trust in the powers that be. Our trust is in God. And here's what I love about this. He gives us a basic rule of thumb of how we are to live, how we are to function. But look at that last part of verse 1. He says this, to be ready for every good work, and here's what I mean by him saying that we should be the best and most benevolent citizens. It's this systemic issues cannot stop you from simple acts of kindness. We fight against those. Yes. It's the people of God that have always led the way in making sure that this has been a more just country. However, while that fight goes on, know that there's certain things that they can't stop us from. Here's one thing that they can't stop us from. We can talk about socioeconomic disparities. We can talk about the educational system and how our kids here at Brown Middle School don't get the same things as the kid over at Inman. But here's what they can't stop us from. Carrying a few dollars in our pocket to make sure that when we get off the highway and those little kids are selling water off the side of the road with their legal hustle, that we support them. Here's what they can't stop us from as Christians. Planning things into our budget so we don't constantly have to walk by and tell people that we don't have anything to give them. But we plan out in advance. Ah, you know, I've really got more than I need. And you need it more than I'm going to miss it. That we should be ready to do good. The Lord Jesus lived under an oppressive rule that ultimately unjustly put him on the cross but he spent his life doing good. And this is what you and I are to do. Look at verse 2. Slander no one to avoid fighting and to be kind to all people. Interesting uh, Greek study. If you go back and find the Greek of that word all, it literally means all. It gives us this disposition of how we're to act even in the face of, especially in the face of people that have done us wrong. And it's hard because we find ourselves commanded to act nice, to be kind, to be gentle, to show consideration of people that have done us wrong. How do we do that? In the very next line, he says this, this is how you become the people that you are supposed to be. You remember who you were. For we too were once foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. What he's saying is you ain't always been saved. 
But look, the reason why he calls them to look at themselves and how they used to be is not to force them into self-pity, right? Self-pity is a form of pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. So whether you have too high a view of yourself or too low a view of yourself, pride is when you have too much of a view of yourself. What he's saying is, I want you to think of what you were, not so that you would be filled with pity, but so that you would be filled with perspective. And the perspective would give you sympathy. Look at the words that he uses there. It's not just that you were foolish, and disobedient, that you made the wrong choices. It's that we used to be deceived and enslaved to various passions and pleasures. This is not just you didn't do better. It was you couldn't do better. That the Bible's testimony of all of us before Christ, white, black, rich, poor, old, young, Democrat, or Republican, was that you and I were enslaved to sin. Our problem was not just that we did the wrong thing, it was that we had the wrong identity that always led us to do the wrong thing. So what he says is, before you want to give somebody what they deserve, remember who you were, and then verse 4 says, remember how God treated you. Not with killing, but with kindness. Look, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He didn't stomp us. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. When the appearing of Jesus came, what Jesus came to do was not to reveal God's wrath on people that deserved it. He came to reveal God's kindness to people that didn't. That's what changes us for people that don't feel loved or people that feel prioritized or marginalized or victimized or abandoned or disrespected. Jesus Christ Kindness came and appeared, and it appeared he made it plain indiscriminately. So everybody got a sight of it. Your sight of God's kindness in Christ is not based on your age, not based on your race, not based on your gender, not based on your sexual orientation. It was God's love for all mankind that caused this appearance of Christ to come down. And I want you to look at this. Just look at all of the verbs that are put here. But when the kindness of our God and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through his washing, he poured out his spirit on us so that us, having been justified 
by him, we might become heirs, not of what he owes us, but what he gives us. And what you see here is that God's work in salvation is this one-way work. When God establishes relationship in the Bible, he doesn't respond to somebody introducing themselves to him. God is always the first one to reach out. God is always the first one to display. God is always the first one to initiate his work. And the reason why he does that is when we think of salvation, we have to remember salvation is not a story of instruction, God telling us what to do. Salvation is a story of emancipation, God setting us free. So the central story of the Old Testament, of most of your Bible, God always calls them back to, no, no, listen. Y'all were slaves. Y'all ain't have nothing. Y'all ain't have no swords to set yourself free. Y'all didn't come up with this great plan to get out. Y'all were slaves. And God said, and I came through and I set you free. This is the same storyline that you and I were slaves, right? Verse 3, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Does hate and detesting one another, does gossip, does backbite, slander, or any of those things attractive? Or any of those things that you and I want for our lives? No, but before Christ, all of those things were indicative of what our lives were like. And we couldn't get out of it because we were trapped. Do you remember how powerless you felt to say, I'm not going to do it again? To say, I don't want to run back to pornography because it doesn't satisfy me. But then you find yourself in the same place. To say, I'm not going to run back into the arms of another guy because that doesn't do anything to get rid of my shame. It only increases it, but you find yourself in the same place. This story of salvation, this good news of what God did to us, is not a story of instruction. It's not a story of your resolve. It's a story of God's salvation. And look at what he does. He changes our past emancipation. It says this, when the kindness of God appeared, he saved us. And we're just going to go through and reflect on this because in all of the Apostle Paul's writings, this right here is probably the most comprehensive picture. He gives us salvation and he just wants us all to sit with it. God saved us. He set us free. That need for salvation... All those things that we did, that we spend our time on now, saying, I wish that I could undo those things. In an instant, God saved us. Jesus has paid that past debt. For those that repent of our sins and put our trust in him, we've been saved. The past, the thing that we couldn't do anything to change, is no longer a factor in the way that God sees it. But then he goes on and says this, look, not by our works, but according to his mercy, in verse 5, 
through the washing of regeneration and renewal. He doesn't just change our past, but he changes our present. So when you see these words here, regeneration and renewal, regeneration is this, that once you were dead, and now you are made alive. So what the Spirit of God does, right, The same spirit that raised God up from the dead. The Bible says that those of us that have put our faith in Christ, that same spirit raises us up. But we're not just regenerated. He says this, we're renewed. Which means there's something about us at our core that fundamentally changes, right? This is where you get the concept of being born again. I had a sister who um, was going to join this church a few years ago, and as we sat down and just talked about her story, how it was that she came to know the Lord, I remember sitting with his sister in a room, and she talked and she shared her story about um, her idol was acting. And everything that she did in her life, she did to this end, and she worked so hard at it, and it meant the most to her, and she put family and all this stuff on the side, but then she started going to this church, and she heard the gospel being preached. She said it resonated with her heart, and then she looked at me, and she said, John, I don't know what happened. I can't explain it, but something changed. I found myself wanting for this. I found my my moods changing based on how successful I was or how bad I did. And then something changed. And I sat down and I told her, this is what the Bible means when it says that we're born again. Our appetites change. And it's something that we can't explain. The fact that we used to run to certain things to calm us down or to give us peace. And then it seemed like, not in every aspect of our life, but in certain aspects of our life, God took that taste away in a minute. And what he says is, this is what's going on. Our past has been changed all by God's work. In salvation, our present, our very being, our taste... Our appetites have changed, not because of willpower, but because of God's work. And then he goes on and says this, so that having been justified by his grace, verse 7, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Our past has changed, our present has changed, and our future has changed because of this, the justification by his grace. Here's what justification is, or to be justified by God. It is not just to have your debt paid, but it is to have an inheritance deposited. So a few years ago, I had $60,000 in student loans, and I'm sitting across the table at lunch with this guy, and he tells me, or he asks me, John, how much do you have in student loans? And I say, man, about 60 grand. And he says, well, here's what's going to take place. I've got a business deal that's going to close next week. And when it closes, I'm going to pay off the whole thing for you. So tell me the exact amount, and I'll write that check, pay off that debt clean. 
Well, the next week came, and he came through on his word. He wrote out this check. He paid off the exact day, the amount that I told him. Well, what I find out is in a few weeks, Sally Mae writes me a check back for a couple of dollars. Um, it turned out the estimate that they gave me was too much. So since he paid my debt and some, uh, they gave me a check back. Now, that check was only $2, so it didn't mean anything. <laughs> Listen, when the Bible tells us that we are justified by God's grace, it's not just that Jesus paid off our past debt, but every act of righteousness that he did has been deposited into our account that you and I will get to cash out at a later date. So when God looks at us, it's not just like God is not mad at you. God looks at you with all the pleasure that you look at your bank account on payday. God looks at us with this pleasure, and what that means is that we can look back at God with the same thing, knowing that we don't have anything to fear but a future. God's work, not our work. And so what he says is past, present, future, all of that is God's work, and that's great, and we should rejoice in it. But what Paul is trying to bring out here is that's not even the best part. The best part is not just that God saved sinners that deserved his wrath. The best part is when God saved us. That God showed his kindness, not after we cleaned things up. God showed us his kindness and gave us his best when we were at our worst. So that we would never be afraid to come clean. Now we were studying this text this past week. Me and a few guys from the church. And yeah, yeah, Brother Keith brings this up. He, he just writes out and he's like, yo, John. Um, so what Paul's trying to say is this. Uh, it's not our repentance that leads us to God's kindness. It's God's kindness being displayed that leads us to repentance. That God's love changes us. We don't have to change in order for him to love us. And that is good news for some of us in here that have accepted that good news but find ourselves regressing at times. That what you and I can know is that even if we regress... His love for us never does. And so many of our problems in our world or in our lives come from the fact that we're reflecting on our past mistakes, our present powerlessness, or our future despair. That we're reflecting on our work and not God's work. The way that we become reflections of God's goodness in this world is to constantly be reflecting on God's goodness. He freed us when we were at our worst. So that you and I know the way that we treat people has nothing to do with how they treat us. The kindness that we're to show, the goodness that we're to do here in this world has nothing to do with how anybody reciprocates. What you reflect on determines how you live or how you move. 
Here's the funny thing about a mirror. Just because you're standing in front of a mirror doesn't mean you should be looking at yourself. We think mirrors are meant to point at us, but sometimes mirrors are meant to point away from us so that when we look at them, we don't see us, but we see something else. If you are driving in your car, you have mirrors, two side view mirrors and a rear view mirror. If as you are driving, you see your reflection in all of those mirrors, there is a problem. You're going to crash because those mirrors were designed for you to look at something else and to determine what you were going to do, not based on what you saw of yourself, but based on what you saw of something else. The Bible is like that. It's meant to testify of God's goodness so that you and I follow the leader, and the leader is not us. The leader is what God, or, or, or is who God was in Jesus Christ. So we look at this mirror of his word that is angled towards him to be reminded of this goodness of God. That's why Paul says this in verse 8. Look, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. We become reflections of God's goodness by constantly reflecting on God's goodness. And if we know that that's true, here's what you and I do. We spend our time majoring on the wise. We spend our time not casting anti-vision, but vision. Anti-vision is this. They cut me off. I've got to try as hard as I can not to cuss them out. Don't cuss them out. Don't cuss them out. That's anti-vision. They treated me wrong. I've got to try my best not to repay evil for evil. Don't do them wrong. Don't do them wrong. And it's all of these works where we're trying to affect our actions. And we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, John, don't give them what they gave you. That's not what we are to do. We're to look through that mirror at what Jesus did. And Jesus did so much better than just not cussing folks out. Jesus was praying for their forgiveness as they were killing him. Jesus was patient with people that didn't get it. Jesus was washing the feet of the very person that would use those feet to approach him, fake this sign of love to him that would end up in him being put on the cross. We reflect God's goodness by reflecting on his goodness. So we ask ourselves, not what do they deserve, but we constantly have to go back to, but how did God treat me? But how did God deal with me? I know that your spouse is getting on your nerves and you just want them to have a taste, but how did God treat me? 
I know that I feel like I'm, uh, you may have moved into a place and you see all these folks in need and you feel like you don't have any obligation to meet their needs, but how did God treat you? And you have to do whatever you can to remind yourself of this truth. If it's placing verses on your bathroom walls to scripture that you put into your mind and your heart to reminders that you put in your phone to reminders that you put in your friends. Hey friend, when you hear me complaining and being frustrated and justifying the wrong that I've done because of the wrong that's been done to me, would you just remind me kindly of how God treated me? Because because I leak, and I forget, and I need to be reminded. The passage doesn't end there, though. Here's two other things that he gives us to do and to think through. As we follow the leader, last two brief points, the very first one is this, avoid un necessary pit stops. Verse 9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. He's saying that as we act like God acts in this world, it's profitable for everybody, but there's going to be certain people that come your way that are not interested in doing good, they're looking for a fight. And what he's saying is if you come across somebody that's just looking to argue about stuff, if they look to argue, you look for an exit. There are too many problems in this world that we live in. There are too many problems in Atlanta. There are too many problems in the West End for us to spend our time fighting with people that don't want solutions. They just want something to fight about. Divisive people are like stoplights on a freeway. They defeat the purpose of there being a freeway. And as Titus is calling this church to do good works where they are, he is well aware that there's going to be a group of folks that are just going to find things to fight about. So in the world that we live in, we're constantly going to find people who uh, want to argue about abortion policies, but never find themselves in relationship with someone who may think that's their only option. You're going to have folks that argue about the best way to care for the poor, but don't have any friends outside of their tax bracket. You're going to find people that argue about the effects of gentrification, but are unwilling to give up the comfort of the homes that they live in. Now, there are people that genuinely want to figure things out. This is not saying anybody that questions what we're trying to do should be disregarded, but there are some folks that are just looking for a fight who they ask questions, but the questions that they ask are really rhetorical. They're points that they're trying to make. And, and so his point here is, as we're busy doing what God has called us to do, reflecting his goodness in the world, if somebody's looking for a fight, let them be a shadow boxer. Don't spend your time in it. 
individually, sometimes we need to look for an exit. Corporately, sometimes we need to help folks find one. We just need to be reminded that this is a place where we constantly rejoice in how good God has been to us, and so we're going to spend the rest of our lives reflecting that goodness out in the world. And then in verse 12 through 15, he just tells us to keep our foot on the gas. Uh, It's a closing. This is stuff that we skip over, but it's really rich. And it says this, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you their greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. I think the point that he's trying to make is that as we're called to do good, uh, Paul doesn't want us to halfway do anything. So the words that he uses is this. Paul's getting ready to go and spend his time there. And sometimes people that are involved in hard work just need encouragement. And so Paul says, make every effort. There's some folks from their community that they're getting ready to send out. And he's saying, diligently help them so that they don't lack a thing. And then he just says, yo, let our people, our church, our community, Not just do good works, but let them learn to devote themselves to good works. He doesn't just halfway do things. And there are various ways that you and I can serve. Sometimes we come alongside folks that are really involved and entrenched in the work, and we just give them encouragement. But then there's sometimes where there's folks from our body, and at the end of our time today, we're going to bring up a few families that are getting ready to go on their way, and we just want to make sure that as folks leave here, they don't lack a thing. And then as a church, I think one thing that we have to do, and there's more to come here in the next few months, is we have to to learn how to devote ourselves to these good works so that we won't be unfruitful. We planted this church here three years ago because we saw there were very real and tangible problems here in the West End, on the West Side, that we felt like the church, people that have experienced God's goodness, were the best equipped to fix. We planted this church here in the West End because years ago, before there was a church here, and those of us that lived here on the West Side, folks were bothered by the fact that there were drug dealers on every corner. Folks were perturbed by the fact that even now, you drive up Joseph Lowry, and at any time of the day, you see prostitutes on the side of the street, women who don't know the dignity that God had created them with, or folks that are just trapped. That God didn't just save us, And bring us to this place at this time for us to come in early on real estate and cash out. God has been too good to all of us. Not just for us to not sin, but God has been too good for all of us. Not to devote our lives to being good to others. 
This, you know, this is what God has done for us. And this is why we're here. And the heart that constantly reflects on his goodness to us at our worst is the heart that gives itself completely to serving, to being good for all people. The construction project that God has left in this world that is condemned, that will be torn down one day, is a church, a community of people that have experienced God's goodness to present a reflection in this world that desperately longs for God. My prayer is that that would be true of us and that we would keep our foot on the gas. That at three years in, when it seems like we have a full room and money in the bank and we pay our own bills, that we don't have to go out and ask for any more money, that that this would be a time where we spend our time leveraging everything that we have, clearing out the margins of our lives to be able to give them not just for leisure and vacations and trips and binging on Netflix, but God has called us to do so much more. And there are ample opportunities for us to do that good. We have been saved by God's grace not by our works. But we have been saved in order to get to work. Doing good in the same way that this God has done good to us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, in the name of Jesus, you would help us to give ourselves to learning what it means to do good, Father. Help us to be people that constantly look at you and rejoice in your goodness and those that are profoundly affected and changed by the ways that you've been good to us, Lord. Give us grace to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray.